Before we get started, I want to tell you about one of our awesome new sponsors, Ebles. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You know, except all those aches and pains that creep up as the weather gets cooler, or God forbid you pull a Clark Griswold while putting up the lights. But what if there's a way to be able to enjoy the cold weather of the holiday season without the associated bodily aches and pains? Well, imagine no further as Evil's CBD Topical Freeze Gel is here to the rescue. Whether it's to help that nagging shoulder injury from sports ball game of yesteryear, or it's to help alleviate those deep aches and pains CBD Topical Freeze Gel from Ebels offers the industry best quality and strength to offer lasting relief from chronic pain. And this holiday season, all members of the Brian Nichols Show audience can get that perfect gift to self or stocking stuffer for that fitness fanatic in the family at an exclusive discount at checkout using code TBNS. Again, use code TBNS at checkout to get your discount applied to your order. Listen, the holidays are especially tough this year, so let's at least not spend them in pain. So use code TBNS at checkout to see the evil's difference today. And now, on to the show. Victor Antonio, welcome to the program. Selling is all about, really, It's we're not selling a product, you're not selling a service, you're not selling value, you're not selling whatever you think you're selling, a solution. You're selling change. Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. As a sales and marketing executive in the greater telecommunications cybersecurity industry, Brian works with C-level executives to help them future-proof their company's infrastructure for an uncertain future. And in each episode, Brian takes that experience and applies it to the liberty movement. And this is why we talk about being the trusted advisor. You should be able to help use that expert guidance and all the opinions that I'm sure that you have and help lead them towards not just a decision, but the right decision. Instead of focusing on simply winning arguments or being right, we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and their application in the world of politics, showing you how to ask better questions, tell better stories, and ultimately change people's minds. And now, your host, Brian Nichols. Well, happy Friday there, folks. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, and thank you for joining us on, of course, another fun-filled episode. I am, in fact, your humble host, and today we have a returning guest. I am so excited to have him on the program because last time he helped make monetary policy interesting. Alex Salter is joining the program, and today Alex joins the program once again to help us take down the narrative often promoted that, well, we just need to have better people in government. Nay, it is unfortunately those good intention people trying to use government solutions that end up exacerbating the very problems they are looking to solve in the first place. So Alex gives us some actionable steps we can take right now to help get things back on track or at the very least, Stop the bleeding. So, uh, thank you for another fantastic conversation on today's episode. With that being said, onto the show, Alex Salter here on The Brian Nichols Show. Great to be back, Brian. I'm doing well. Awesome. Alex, thank you for joining the program, and we're, we're excited to have you on the show today because let's talk about it. Economics, top of mind for a lot of Americans right now. Uh, across the board, they're looking at their paychecks, they're seeing their taxes being taken out, but it doesn't seem that the taxes are going to places that they're getting benefit from. So now they're starting to question those systems. You see people going to the grocery store, filling up their carts and realizing that they're not getting as much as they used to. And uh, people are starting to question inflation. And then you just have people trying to find those those answers. And then you have the other side of people trying to bring their solutions to the table. Our friends, and I, as I mentioned in the uh, the teaser here for the uh, the intro, our friends in the National Conservative Camp, and that's where I wanted to focus today because you had a great article over at National Review, and uh, it, it's called uh, uh, "Industrial Policy Is Unwise But Not Impossible." And 
it focuses on one of the recurring themes we see here across the, the program. That is where you see a problem, but then you have someone who's offering a solution that is making things worse. And why is it that people aren't paying attention to the solutions we're bringing to the table? So Alex, let's start off here by addressing the problem. We've gotten to this very tough, tumultuous economic uncertainty in terms of where we're going in the future. People are looking for some type of solutions. They're going towards this national conservative approach. Where are they missing the mark and why are people starting to go more towards this national conservative approach versus the one we'd like to see, a more free market, open uh, open market approach? That's a great question. If I knew the answer of why they found that compelling, uh, I think that I would be a much more effective advocate for the ideas that I think I'm, that are right and that I care about. If I had to, if I had to pick a reason, I think it's because many people in the conservative camp who oftentimes are fellow travelers with us when it comes to questions about liberty, when it comes to questions about individual rights, uh, have frankly gotten tired of the fact that despite the fact that the conservative movement have had 30, 40 years of strong electoral success, the federal government hasn't really gotten very much smaller. We haven't actually been able to roll back the state into a way that helps most Americans. So I think at this point, their reasoning is as long as we have this big, powerful federal government, we might as well use it to uh, go after the people who are making us less free and less prosperous. Now, of course, if you look at that as a libertarian, you think that's exactly the wrong way to think about it. You're trying to you still think that you can win the arms race, but nobody wins an arms race. The best way to protect yourself against being on the wrong side of government power is to dismantle the power while you have the opportunity. Yeah, you're talking about incentives, right? And and this is one of the, uh, I was actually just going over here and we'll go ahead and share the screen here for the uh, the YouTube watcher because this is something I think, uh, you know, people want to go ahead and see as well. And we'll make sure we include the links here um, for the, the, the listener. But uh, one of the, the lines you here, uh, had here, yet while bad incentives are certainly an important part of the industrial policy critique, they take a back seat to an issue raised by older fusionist conservatives. The knowledge problem, which is the idea that it's impossible for the government to acquire and use the necessary information to bolster industry in the ways that national conservatives desire. Let's dig into this knowledge problem, right? And and we libertarians use this critique all the time, especially when we're looking at, um, you know, foreign policy interventions. I mean, that's that seems to be the easiest place for us to go ahead and make the argument. Also, the criminal justice system, we, we find the success in using the knowledge problem, death penalty. Um, are you certain when you're convicting someone to death, absolutely certain that you're making the right decision? Let's apply this to the economics, the, the knowledge problem that you're seeing, and, and how can we help address this knowledge problem as libertarians? Because pe- here's the reality. People are looking for these solutions. How do we present our solutions and, and help them understand that, yes, they, they will actually help solve the problems, but we're not trying to say we're going to go ahead and actively, I guess, go ahead and solve your problems. You have to almost take this on yourself. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So this article that I just had published at National Review today was uh, kind of interesting because I'm actually defending national conservatives a little bit. The whole theme of this article is that while I think that industrial policy is a bad idea for a bunch of reasons, the argument that you sometimes get from people on our side that industrial policy is impossible, I think that argument is wrong. And so what people on our side usually do is they say, well, all of these knowledge-based arguments that were thought up by scholars like Hayek and Mises, they prove that industrial policy is impossible. And at least in terms of what contemporary advocates of American industrial policy are talking about, it's just not true. The knowledge problem refers to the impossibility of centralized uh, entities like governments efficiently 
allocating economic resources in top-down fashion, right? You can't have efficient central planning. It cannot be done. But that's not what advocates of industrial policy are talking about. What they want is more limited targeted policies to raise output in manufacturing sectors and raise employment in manufacturing sectors. This can be done, right? Every semester I teach 17 and 18 year olds that taxes increase the prices of goods to buyers and that subsidies <clears throat> subsidies lower the prices of goods to buyers. We don't have any pro knowledge problem reasons why we can't make statements like that using taxes as in subsidy policy. So you could envision an argument where national conservatives just say, we want to subsidize the living day rights out of manufacturing because we think having a strong manufacturing sector is in the national interest. So I don't think doing that is impossible. I think that you could use public policy to boost output and employment in the auto industry if that's what you wanted to do. But I want to be clear, there are a bunch of really strong arguments why you would not want to do that. They're just not the Hayekian impossibility arguments. So dig into that. What would be the argument? Because your instinctual libertarian reaction, your your knee knee jerk reaction, is to make those arguments. That's the argument I started to go down the path uh, because it it seems to be kind of that that I was like comfort zone. But maybe it is. Maybe it is our comfort zone. That that's the arguments we're so comfortable seeing and and addressing. So what would be the better approach? There's a number of arguments you can make. The first and most obvious one, as you talked about just a second ago, is incentives. Right? We've seen firsthand over decades as the federal government has gotten more in, uh, more actively involved in regulating healthcare, as the federal government has gotten more actively involved in regulating financial markets, they're not actually doing things that are in the interest of the consumer. More often than not, they're rigging the game in the interest of the big players that are already in those markets. Why? Because the regulators who are supposed to be looking out for the interests of consumers get captured by the business interests they're supposed to be competing or contending against and regulating. This is the theory of regulatory capture in economics, and it's one of the most well-developed theories in uh, public choice economics, using the tools of economics to explain political decision-making. So if you just look at Uncle Sam's track record on federal regulation and ask, has this made Americans better off? The answer is a resounding no. And there's no reason to think that they're going to do any better when it comes to industrial policy. Furthermore, on the information side, just because industrial policy isn't impossible doesn't mean that it's not really hard. It is really hard, right? It's not a simple matter to design a policy that's going to nudge markets in just the way that you want them to. Even if you disregard economic efficiency, even if you say, look, all we want is more domestic steel production or all we want is more domestic manufacturers on the assembly line. Okay, well, how are you actually going to design policies to do that that don't actually blow up in your face given the complex interdependencies that exist between market prices, production technology, scale and scope of production? These are not trivial uh, questions by any stretch of the imagination. I think industrial policy advocates are really deluding themselves when they just say, oh, it's a matter of political will rallying a winning political coalition behind the idea of expanding the manufacturing base. No, it isn't. It's not by any means easy. And just because it's not impossible, just because we shouldn't imbue the impossibility argument doesn't mean that doing this is straightforward. We should be very skeptical of these ideas. So what's the benefit then? Um, you know, if, if we see, because we see this argument, right, from our friends on the left and, and even, again, to some of the national conservative arguments that we need to have some guiding principles, right? And that kind of seems to be the argument, you know, government, if it's going to be there, it's going to be the referee, it enforces the rules. And and we see too often than not that those rules can be arbitrarily dictated by politicians who are working hand in hand with the players of the game. So it really 
it, it almost kind of has this, this uh, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, quid pro quo kind of feel. And your average player of the game, you know, if you're thinking of a game of football, your average wide receiver out there, they're like, I'm not playing the game like these guys are, but I'm still being lumped in. It's not fair. So, I mean, can we make a better situation going forward, Alex? And this is a little bit of a weird question, I guess, but I mean, is, is it a matter of the existing infrastructure that we have in place in terms of what we've asked government to do over the past hundreds and hundreds of years that's gotten just to the point where government in, in really is the ultimate status quo. Once something becomes uh, established in government, it's so hard to get rid of. So is that part of the problem here is that we're, we're facing not just a status quo, but a legalized status quo? Yes. Next question. <laughs> no, seriously, folks. That is absolutely one of the biggest problems that we confront today. We've simply asked the federal government from Washington to do too much. Uncle Sam is too big in scale. Uncle Sam is too big in scope. In my view, the reason that I'm a libertarian is because I look at the field of politics right now and I see that the single biggest problem is caused by the fact that the federal government is massively oversized. I'm not saying that that's the root of every single social or political problem that we currently confront. It's not. But in terms of the single factor that's most responsible for most of them, yeah. When you have government that's too big in scale and scope, not only does it crowd out other voluntary productive ways with solving problems, it creates more problems. You're caught in this game where you're constantly playing whack-a-mole where the moles are coming up faster than you can whack them. And every single time that we see these problems, we think, oh, well, we need another government program. Each new government program creates two or three new serious social problems. You're never going to get up to speed. Right. This is the classic Ludwig von Mises uh, dynamics of interventionism argument because of the unintended consequences of these well-intentioned but ultimately counterproductive policies. We're always playing catch up. And by the time we actually understand what's going on, surprise, the federal government is spending trillions and trillions of dollars every single year that it doesn't need. The federal debt has gotten to 130 percent of GDP. Uh, the United States federal government has taken on 200 trillion with a T. trillion in unfunded liabilities that we don't have the money to pay for. And we're left scratching our heads going, what the heck went wrong? You try to get Uncle Sam to do too much, and this is just how it works. Well, and now we're really feeling those those implications. I think your average person is feeling it. It used to be one of those things I'd go on to, you know, social media, the conversation about, you know, inflation, for example, that would be uh, something that would be out there mostly in the political world being discussed, but not by your average person, really. Um, you know, you go home, talk to the in-laws, go home, talk to, you know, the the, the family member. And was it really a conversation? Eh, not much. I, I would bring it up, but it was like, ah, no, you know, we'll, we'll see. And now it's like, this is the topic of conversation. I heard it at Thanksgiving. I hear it around the office. Everybody's talking about things just don't, you know, money doesn't get you as much as, much as it used to. What's happening? Why, why are we experiencing this hyperinflation? And it is a direct result of, to your point, the, the just amount that government has not only sought to do, but then just the, the incessant printing of money just out of nowhere. I really want to find where they found the magic money tree that they use at the Fed because whatever it is, it, it's it's propping up this massive bubble that we have right here. Um, but I think your average person, and I've, I've said this a million times in my show, Alex, they're aware. They, they feel that something is wrong. 
that that there there is just something off and now they're looking for those alternatives but let's talk about inflation because that might be one of the most top of mind uh discussion points that we can point to right now that people not only are discussing but they're looking for real tangible solutions and if we aren't entering into these conversations with real solutions that are not just you know good solutions but are actually practical and can be applicable into their life right now they're going to ignore us so let's kind of walk through how we got here with inflation yeah i know we there's so much to unpack, but let's maybe give the the Spark Notes version, and then what can we do to help remedy the the immediate inflation that we're feeling right now uh, thus far? Right. So the orthodox economist answer to what's going on right now points to two demand side factors, and uh, on the other side of that, one supply side factor. On the demand side, we have the combination of massive fiscal stimulus, right, all the spending packages that were passed to try and minimize the economic damage from COVID as well as the massive and unprecedented monetary injections carried out by the Federal Reserve through their asset purchases for the previous two years. Those two things put put together plausibly give a big boost to aggregate demand. On the other side of that, you have the supply problems that are lingering around from the sudden stop COVID economy, right? We're sort of learning the hard way that you can't just shut down and then turn on an economy again. When you have people staying home because of social distancing, when you have people that are on lockdown, when you have all these things, all these production plans that are being stopped suddenly because of the sudden stop COVID economy, we're discovering, unfortunately, the hard way that when we want to start economic activity again, it's much harder to get started than if we had never stopped in the first place. So those supply side bottlenecks, you hear that word a lot, but I think that there's something to it. The fact that there are these quote unquote inelasticities or hangups or bottlenecks on the supply side means that all that purchasing power is interacting with those supply side constraints and just driving up prices. Now, I want to emphasize that's the orthodox economist answer. I'm a little bit weird. And so I tend to think that supply side factors are more to blame than the demand side factors uh, for a couple of reasons. Although it seems like massive government spending should be inflationary, when you just go and look at the previous historical data, government budget deficits by themselves tend not to be very inflationary. Right. Reagan massively increased the deficit. We didn't see inflation go up. In fact, we saw a great disinflation under Reagan. Uh, Obama massively increased the deficit and we didn't see inflation move very much. So I don't think that government budget deficits by themselves have much effect on the overall level of prices. When it comes to monetary policy, I'm a little more sympathetic. But then you have to ask the question, well, we've been printing money like it's going out of style for two years. Why did it wait so long for prices to go up? You can't say it's just because people were sitting at home. You can shop online, right? Banks can make loans remotely. People can make can buy stuff remotely. If we actually believe what we say about monetary printing and monetary injections, as soon as people got their hands on the new money, they should have realized, look, all this new purchasing power is going to drive up prices pretty soon, so I better spend it now while I can while my money goes somewhere. But it's precisely everybody thinking that way that drives up prices, right? The hot potato prophecy is sort of self-fulfilling. So I don't think that we have a very good explanation for why, if this is classical monetary-induced inflation, why it took almost two years to manifest. I tend to think that supply-side factors matter more at the margin. I'm looking at the overall trend in total spending, and we seem to be back to the path that we were on before COVID. So I'm hoping that the magnitude of price increases are going to start settling down in the second half of this upcoming year. But I've been wrong about important economic things before, and I could well be wrong about this one. It's like, if, if I were to give an analogy, and correct me if I'm wrong, right, you, you need, for a weed to grow, you need the sunlight, 
but they, they aren't mutually exclusive. And if you have less sunlight, then the weed won't grow as nice, or nice as nice, but or as big. But if you have more sunlight, then the weed will definitely grow bigger. Um, but you add rain into it, and it's just going to explode even more. You you think about what we, we've had here, the supply side. I mean, yeah, COVID, uh, you know, COVID was a huge issue. It's the weed, it, right? But, or rather, let's inverse that, actually. Um, I would say the, the the demand side, the the Fed, the monetary policy, you know, the the fiscal policy you've been talking about, that would be the the ray of sun and the, or the, the weed rather, and then the ray of sun was COVID, right? The supply side that also didn't cause it to exponentially grow. Um, they go hand in hand, but they're not mutually exclusive. Is that fair? It could just be a perfect storm of all of those things, uh, and that's that's the standard answer that you will find. So to the extent that serious economists are talking about it, they're mentioning all those things. Again, I want to emphasize my skepticism of the fiscal policy and monetary policy explanations stems from the fact that I'm a little bit weird compared to most economists. <laughs> no, you're not weird. It's it's that you take things and you make it fun and real and applicable to your average person. I think I, I sent a little letter to you there outlining that you're the only person who can make you know monetary policy interesting to your average feel, person. Feel free to pick a synonym for weird that sounds much nicer. Sophisticated. Unique. Yeah, I like. I mean, esoteric was a winner too. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, the the problem I think has been, and and as we're going towards the tail part of the conversation here, is that your average person has been so unplugged from this conversation because who was having the conversation, Alex? It has been politicos. It has been. I'm not trying to to bash on you, but it's been academia. It's been professors, and it's felt very. Like from from the the you know the ivory towers, it's you know from on high, and it really hasn't felt empathetic, authentic, real to what's happening, and and now all of a sudden that it's a real issue. Now it's starting to feel like okay, who can I look to? I don't want to talk to those people that were being so condescending and so rude, and people are looking for people who are the the newer voices they can relate to they're looking for people like you not not the people like you know Paul Krugman um and that's a good thing i think you know we we want more alex salters out there leading the charge and having conversations about you know monetary policy and fiscal policy than paul krugman uh because i i would dare say we'd be in a much better spot where were we to be following the alex salter approach to uh, to economics but not, neither here nor there and by the way folks I apologize for being all uh, stuffy today. It's not the vid. Uh, I ended up, I, I had another nosebleed issue that I had to go t- get taken care of. And let me tell you what, when they go in, they hit a nerve that is like where your your uh, sinuses have the, uh, the the snot that gets produced. And that thing just gets going. It, it won't stop. It's so annoying. And this has happened three weeks ago. I can't win, man. So we got to make sure that we get this whole global, global warming thing to, to figure it out. Do we call it global warming anymore? Climate change? I don't know. Uh, neither here nor there. You're here to talk about economics. So with that being said, let's go towards the tail end of the conversation, my friend. Um, I want people to be able to take away some some action items and and this is sometimes the hard part they, they see the problem they see a solution and they're like okay how do i get from here to there so alex help us get from here to there what can your average person do right now is is there anything your average person can do right now that's a very good question so in terms of how we can discipline the public sector I would say that the administration does own this a little bit, not as much as most people think, but uh, the Biden administration sold themselves as the return to normalcy presidency. And then as soon as he got elected, he sort of um, started buying into the cult of the messianic presidency and promised that he was going to make everything better for everyone by embracing all of these 
uh, highly generous federal programs that frankly we can't aff afford on our current tax receipts. So the fact that you've had that combination of I can fix everything plus the condescending, no, there's no inflation. Oh, wait, well, there's yes, some inflation, but you're dumb if you notice it. Oh, wait, yes, there is inflation, but you're racist if you complain about it. These are all takes that we've seen from the administration at various points. So they definitely deserve to own that. And I'm, I'm more than happy to tell people that they should tell uh, the Biden administration and the entire Democratic Party that they need to eat that for dinner come the, med come the midterms. But in terms of what people can do to protect themselves right now, I think the, the most sensible thing that people can do is try and find some yield that's going to find a way of insulating some of those price hikes from inflation. There are lots of mutual fund options that are available, even to retail investors that are going to track pretty well in the next uh, couple of months. I'm not going to pick and endorse any particular mutual fund since I'm not a finance guy and I'm just you know doing my own thing and I'm not in a position to recommend except to say, given that we know that there are significant price pressures, if you want to protect the purchasing power of your earnings, you should be substituting away from things like cash and savings accounts and checking accounts and towards things like broad-based mutual funds that track equities markets. And crypto. And crypto. <laughs> I was gonna say, are, are let me crypto. be honest. I know nothing about crypto. I know that there is a thing called crypto and people are excited about it. That is the extent <laughs> of my knowledge. They they are, not only are they excited, they are ecstatic about it and they will tell you all about it as they should because again, I I, I think in our friend Jeremy Todd over on the, uh, the show Sell Liberty, he was talking about the future. I think crypto is gonna be one of the things we need to focus on. Uh, he brought up, uh, as my one of my lights dies, he brought up um, we need to focus on nuclear power as a huge uh, component going forward for uh, meeting the climate change conversation head on. So there's a lot of things that are out there that we need to be paying attention to. So yes, we'll make sure uh, that we're raising them up. And that includes raising up people like you, Alex, who are out there fighting the good fight, making Yes, of course. No, thank you. You're, you're making economics interesting. You're making monetary policy interesting, but you're also making it applicable. So we want to make, make I'm sure happy people... to do that. I'll let you and Elon Musk make the case for a Dogecoin. Okay, well, we'll let Elon handle that. Um, he is, as a matter of fact, Time's most uh, important person, most influential person. Is that what it is? Uh, you know, Time's person of the year, whatever the hell it is. He's It's Elon this year. So congratulations, Elon. Um, but yeah, you want to go ahead and learn about Dogecoin, go check that out there. But don't worry, uh, you know, we have our good friends, Donnie Gabbert and a few others uh, who will go ahead and tell you. There's a couple other uh, different uh, cryptos you should go ahead and check out. Bitcoin, Ethereum, so on and so forth. So uh, with that being said, um, obviously, let's have folks be able to continue the conversation Alex. So uh, let's point them your way. Social media, where can they go ahead and find you? And also, they want to go ahead and read some of the awesome stuff you're doing. We'll go ahead and include the link uh, to Industrial Policy is Unwise but Not Impossible over at the National Review. Uh, but where else can go, uh, folks go ahead and find you? My website is www.awsalter.com. That's where I have all of my writing, uh, academic and popular. You can find pretty much everything that I've ever done or said there. And uh, I am on Twitter. My handle is at Alex W. Salter, and I'd be happy to, uh, to interact with you on there as well. Awesome. And folks, we will make it super duper easy for you. What we'll do is go ahead and include all of Alex's link in the show notes, plus the transcript of today's entire episode. And as a matter of fact, how about all 400 plus episodes of the Brian Nichols show available for your listening pleasure. But with that, oh, and yeah, by the way, there's a few there from Alex as well. That you can go ahead and check out um, as well. So that being said, yes, Alex Salter, thank you so much, my friend, for joining us on today's episode of the Brian Nichols Brian, show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Have you checked out the new Brian Nichols show collection over at 
proud libertarian, head to briannicholshow.com forward slash shop and you can grab some amazing Liberty swag that will definitely help pique some interest from our good ideas don't require force snapbacks, Alexa overthrow the government t-shirts, question everything mugs, and of course our ever popular don't hurt people, don't take people's stuff bumper sticker. The Brian Nichols Show shop over at Proud Libertarian has all the Liberty swag you need. And hey, if you're looking for more awesome Liberty apparel, check out the rest of the amazing Proud Libertarian store while you're over there. And be sure to use code TBNS at checkout to get 10% off your entire order. That's right, 10% off your entire order from Proud Libertarian, including everything over at the Brian Nichols Show shop. And all you have to use is code TBNS at checkout. One more time, head to BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash shop and check out the brand new Brian Nichols Show store over at Proud Libertarian and use code TBNS at checkout for 10% off your entire order. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up our conversation with Alex Salter. Thank you, Alex, for joining the program. And folks, if you enjoy the program as much as I did today, well, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Go ahead and give today's episode a share. And when you do, make sure you go ahead and tag Alex and make sure you go ahead and give yours truly a tag as well at B Nichols Liberty. Coming up tomorrow, well, Sell Liberty is done for this season. It'll be picking up back in January of 2023, but don't you worry. The sales lessons are not stopping. We'll be having another one-on-one morning sales huddle, you and me, mano y mano, and I promise it is going to be one that certainly educates, enlightens, and informs. So with that being said, folks, thank you for joining us uh, on today's Friday episode of The Brian Nichols Show. Um, Also, if you enjoyed the episode beyond uh, going ahead and sharing the episode on social media and give me a tag. I would love for you to please go to briannicholsshow.com and give us a five-star rating and review. It takes about two minutes of your time and the impact of that two-minute review, it really does do so much to help other people see the value that you yourself are seeing in what we're doing here at The Brian Nichols Show. So uh, with that being said, thank you to everyone who's already gone out of their way to give us a five-star rating and review. And you too uh, can join the list of the hundreds of other folks who've gone out of their way to do that. BrianNicholsShow.com. Go ahead and give us a five-star rating review. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, with that being said, folks, thank you for joining us on your Friday. It is Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Alex Salter. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at BrianNicholsShow.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. Want to help us reach more people? Give the show a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Find us at BrianNicholsShow.com and download the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on social media at BNicholsLiberty and consider donating to the show at BrianNicholsShow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Laura Stanley, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DaCosta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Audio production for The Brian Nichols Show is brought to you by DB Podcast Audio. Learn more by emailing inquiries to william at dbpodaudio.com.